Welcome back to our study of the kingdom of heaven. I do want to say uh, for those that have been following along on sermon audio that I apologize. I wasn't aware until this week that uh, having various people read the scriptures was not getting picked up by the microphone. So I will read all the scriptures this evening just so they can be recorded on sermon audio. So let's do a quick review of a couple of the things that we've said before we jump into uh, our study this evening. Uh, We're talking about the kingdom of heaven, and we have said that a basic definition of a kingdom, uh, any kind of kingdom, is that it is the reign or the rule of a king or a sovereign. And so we talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. We're talking about the reign and the rule of God over his creation. Uh, And specifically, talking about the kingdom of God, last week uh, we saw that the means by which God orders and delegates the government and authority of uh, the visible aspect of the kingdom of God here on earth is by means of the new covenant. And so we looked at what that means uh, for the government of the church and the delegated authority and responsibility there. But this evening, what I want to do is to start looking at uh, Christ's teaching on the kingdom, specifically uh, by means of parable. But before we do that, uh, we need to have somewhat of an understanding of what would be in the minds of that generation of Uh, Jewish people in Israel that would hear him speak and teach these things. And when he said the word kingdom, what would that mean to them? Uh, So they're familiar with their Old Testament scriptures. And so when they hear the word kingdom, what's the first thing that's going to pop into their mind? They're going to think about the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, particularly under the kingship of David and then Solomon. That's kind of the high watermark for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And they're going to think about, even in the historical narratives in, say, Samuel uh, dealing with David, uh, even there we have promises, God speaking to David and promising him that a son of his would sit on the throne and reign forever. And then as we move into the prophets during the Babylonian exile, uh, we have more promises of a coming son of David who would sit on the throne. And so uh, Jesus' hearers would have all of that in their minds. When he says the word kingdom, that's immediately what is going to pop into their mind. The promise of the restoration of the throne of Israel, uh, a son of David who will sit on that throne and reign forever. And so uh, one of those passages that might be in their mind is this one from Daniel chapter 2. And so you remember King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. He's had in his dream a vision uh, of uh, a statue made of different types of metals. And Daniel uh, has to tell him both what the dream is and interpret it for him. And so here's, I just want to read a few of these verses from Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 34. Daniel tells the king, You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that's the end of the vision as David 
relates, uh, as Daniel relates it. And then he says in verse 36, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. And so then he begins to interpret the dream and the different kingdoms that are represented. And then in verse 44, he says, and in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. So you can see this, this would be uh, in the minds of Jewish people when they hear Jesus teaching about the kingdom of heaven, they might recall this passage, the God of heaven setting up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, that will stand forever. And so that's what they are expecting, a coming future kingdom established by God, uh, restoring the throne to Israel, ruling over the nations and without end. And so what happens is, is that we have uh, several hundred years of no prophetic witness in Israel. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene. And so in Matthew chapter 3, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John the Baptist is telling them, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's almost here. This kingdom we've been expecting, that we've been promised uh, throughout the Old Testament is almost here. I'm preparing the way for the king. And so the presence of the king heralds the coming of the kingdom. And so uh, this is what uh, they have in mind. And of course, we know in Matthew, Jesus is identified as the king in the genealogies at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. And so we know uh, that Jesus is that king whose way John the Baptist is preparing. So as Jesus begins his public ministry, uh, he teaches about the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to skip over most of that tonight and probably come back to it uh, another time in a couple of weeks. But I do want to touch briefly on uh, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, and he says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven. So the God of heaven, as Daniel said in his interpretation of the dream, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we are to pray for the kingdom to come. And what that means is for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. When God's will is done, that means that the subjects of his kingdom live in obedience to his will, uh, that they obey him, obey his laws and his teaching. And so think about that. Obedience to the law of God, the will of God being enacted in the lives of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven is literally heaven on earth. So as we think about, and sometimes we'll talk about something that we thought was really great, is like heaven on earth. Well, heaven on earth literally is the will of God being accomplished in the lives of his subjects. So as Jesus continues his teaching ministry, he begins to use parables. So we'll turn to Matthew chapter 13, which is where we will uh, spend the rest of the evening. Uh, He's going to teach with parables. So Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat. The whole multitude stood on the shore. 
Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying. And so Jesus begins to teach to the multitudes using parables. So we have to answer the question, what is a parable? Before we attempt to understand this teaching of Christ's. So a parable, uh, we'll see tonight, can be one of several literary uh, devices. It might be a metaphor, which is a direct comparison of one thing to another. Uh, in which we might say, work today was killer. I, I don't mean that my wood shop actually turned into a sentient assassin and tried to kill me today. I just mean it was really hard and I'm tired at the end of the day. That's a metaphor. Uh, a simile is a literary device that compares one thing to another thing. And so we say we use the word like or as. Uh, and so we might say, hey, we went to this event and it was so crowded it was like a million people. Not literally a million people there. We just mean it was really crowded. That's a simile, and we're going to see multiple of those this evening here in, in Matthew 13. The other device that we'll see is allegory. Now, I mean the literary device of allegory, not allegorical interpretation. That's another can of worms altogether. What I mean is an actual allegory, is a literary device. And so for a definition of that, um, we go to the Greeks. Cicero said that an allegory is a manner of speech denoting one thing by the letter of the words, but another by their meaning. So it's to say one thing, but to mean something else by it. So an example of that would be in Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, the prophet tells an allegory of the destruction of a vineyard. Not about a vineyard. It's about God's coming judgment on the nation of Israel. It's an allegory. Israel is the vineyard. God is going to destroy the nation just as the vineyard is destroyed. Uh, so it means, allegory literally means to speak other. It means to say one thing, but to mean something else. And you think about John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. Now when it comes to parables, we have to be careful uh, even in considering them as allegories. The first one here in chapter 13 is really an allegory, but we have to be careful because a parable by definition, is a simple story. It's simple. Uh, it is drawn from real-life experience, and it is used to teach or to illustrate a spiritual truth. Uh, and so we can think, this, this happens all through the scriptures. Think about 2 Samuel chapter 12. David has sinned with Bathsheba. The prophet Nathan shows up, right? He tells him a parable uh, of someone who steals someone else's lamb. And that is meant to, to illustrate and point out to David his sin. So there's parables used all through the Old Testament and in the New Testament, primarily in the teaching of Christ. But here's where we have to be careful. Uh, R.C. Sproul says this about parables, and uh, this is an important point. I've also heard Vody Bauckham make the same point. He says, a few parables might have two major points, or possibly three but we do not treat them as true allegories, finding hidden significance in every single element. So if you think about Pilgrim's Progress, which is a long allegory, uh, there are significance to a lot of the details in the story. A parable doesn't work that way. And so uh, for an example, in Luke 15, and maybe we'll look at these in the future, but uh, Jesus tells three parables in Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, parable of the lost son, or what we call the prodigal son. So here's the, the center one, the parable of the lost coins, three verses. Luke 15, verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? 
When she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So what's the point of the parable? The point of the parable is, is that when one sinner repents and is saved, there's joy in the kingdom of heaven over that. Right? We're not supposed to look at this and go, okay, there's ten coins. What do those ten coins represent? Who's the woman? Who are her friends? It's beside the point. There's one point to the parable. One sinner gets saved, rejoicing in heaven. All three of those parables are making that same point. One out of a hundred sheep, one out of ten coins, one out of two sons. So the three parables are making the same point, rejoicing in heaven over the salvation of one sinner with an escalating uh, sense of significance. One out of a hundred, one out of ten, one out of two, just showing how important it is each individual sinner who is saved. So we're not supposed to look for all the details in these parables. They make a p- one point. So uh, as we begin to look at Matthew chapter 13, there are eight parables that are told here. Uh, and interestingly, this entire chapter is arranged uh, in a structure that uh, you've heard us talk about before, a chiastic structure, a, a Hebrew poetic kind of structure. There are four parables that Jesus tells in the first half Uh, that he speaks to the multitudes, and then there are four parables that he tells in the second half, speaking to the disciples alone. Now, there are also, uh, he gives explanations of two of the parables, or interpretations of them, and those are given to the disciples alone as well. But uh, So we have two sections of four parables. The first one, the parable of the sower in verses 3 through 9, is separate from the other three in this first half uh, because it has no introduction. Uh, It's really an allegory, whereas the others are similes. Uh, It's separated from the other three by an explanation or an interpretation of it. It's separated from the other three by uh, a section uh, of explanation of the purpose of the parables. And then parables 2, 3, and 4 all are introduced with the same phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. So Jesus is using the literary device of simile. Then we have parables 5, 6, and 7, which are told to the disciples alone, but they're all introduced with that same phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then the last parable is like the first one in that it's separate from the other three in its group uh, because it has a different beginning. Uh, It's separated from the other three by an explanation of a parable and by a question and answer with the disciples concerning their understanding of the parables. And then right in the center of the chapter, verses 34 and 35, divide the two halves uh, by giving us uh, a further explanation of the prophetic purpose of the parable. So there's a a sort of structure to this chapter that we see in Hebrew poetry quite a bit. And there's another one within the chapter that we'll see here in a few minutes. So let's look at uh, chapter 13, verses 3 through 9, and the first parable that Jesus tells. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, 
let him hear. So we have in this uh, allegory that Jesus tells as a parable, it's a story. It's a story taken from real life of someone planting seed, right? And so we're familiar with that. We don't even live in the same sort of agrarian society that they did. So they're very familiar with the picture that Jesus is painting for them. Notice that uh, he just says a sower. He doesn't try and identify it as being any particular individual. It's just a class of person, someone who sows seed. Uh, the, the focus here is on the four different types of soil that the seed falls on. It's the same seed that's being sown everywhere. Uh, the difference is in the soil. Uh, and then verse 9 tells us, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so uh, this is a phrase that you'll hear several times throughout the Gospels where Jesus is telling us that we need to think carefully about what he's telling us so that we can understand it. So that's the first parable that he tells. And then in verse 10, immediately, it says, The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Uh, now, the interesting thing is, is the disciples uh, are asking him, Why are you speaking to the multitudes in parables? The disciples themselves uh, don't necessarily understand these. And so Jesus is going to have to explain a couple of these uh, parables to the disciples. But they ask, Why? Why are you using the parables? And so Jesus answers them, uh, beginning in verse 11. He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he who will have abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So he, he says that it's been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Um, it's no secret to the Jews of Jesus' time that the kingdom is coming. It's been promised from of old and the prophets, they are expecting it. So the secret of the kingdom is not that it's coming. The secret of the kingdom is not that it is near or at hand. John the Baptist has told them that. Um, there's no new truth really being revealed here. It's just a new understanding of the old. Uh, George Eldon Ladd in his book, Presence, says this. He says, the new truth now given to men by revelation in the person and mission of Jesus is that the kingdom which is to come finally in ap apocalyptic power as foreseen by Daniel has in fact entered into the world in advance in a hidden form to work secretly within and among men. So see, they were expecting the kingdom. Daniel had predicted it. Other prophets had predicted it. But they were expecting what Daniel described, that this kingdom that God established would destroy the other kingdoms of the world and that God's king sitting on the throne of David would rule over the entire world. Uh, and what Jesus is revealing to them is something that was hidden. It was there in the Old Testament. It was a mystery. Uh, but he's now revealing it to them that the kingdom first comes uh, in a small way and then it will come in that apocalyptic sense uh, finally, but that's not how it begins. And so that's really the secret uh, of the kingdom that he's revealing. The kingdom is not coming in the manner in which they had expected it. Uh, notice that he says that it's been given to you to know. Uh, the disciples, this is a gift to them. They don't automatically understand this. And so uh, Christ is explaining it to them. The Spirit will continue to explain this. Uh, but notice also, but to them it has not been given. So one purpose of the parables, and there's no way around this, uh, one purpose of the parables is to conceal or to veil truth from 
unbelievers, from those who have not been given the truth by God. In verse 12, uh, he says, For whoever has to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Uh, he's talking about spiritual blessings and that we should not take them for granted. If we have spiritual blessings, uh, we may get more, but they can be taken away. In chapter 8, uh, Jesus kind of uses similar language. In chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, uh, he's speaking to uh, the Pharisees and stuff, and he says, And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the kingdom is even going to be taken away uh, from those who refuse to accept it, refuse to adhere uh, it. They had citizenship in Israel. That's going to be taken away from them, and more will be given to those who are willing to hear, who have those ears to hear. Then in verse 13, uh, Jesus says, Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because, so here he's giving his main reason, seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, and now he's going to quote from Isaiah, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their ears, eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. And then Jesus again says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So rather than trying to draw this out on the board, I'm going to pass around copies of this section, verses 13 through 17. And you can see, again, the, the chiastic structure uh, of this entire passage. Uh, the first pa section there, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand, is paralleled at the end. Uh, Jesus saying, desiring to see what you see and did not see and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So you can kind of see the parallel structure of the language, seeing and hearing and understanding. Uh, the second phrase, and in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled parallel to uh, the many prophets and righteous men who desired this. Uh, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, parallel to your ears are blessed because they do hear. Seeing you will see and not perceive, parallel to but your eyes are blessed because they do see. Uh, so you can see the parallel structure uh, of this chiastic arrangement here in this passage. So this is the purpose of the parables, that those who are elect uh, who have been given this gift of understanding uh, will understand the parables and those who do not, not that they can't understand the words that are being spoken, but the spiritual truth that is being conveyed here uh, will serve merely to harden their hearts rather than to enlighten them. So those who are blessed by God and given the gift of a soft heart will be enlightened to this, but those who are not will be hardened by it, right? Jesus didn't. He spoke to them in parables. He didn't have to speak to the multitude at all. He chose to speak to them in parables for this reason, uh, that he might enlighten those who are elect and harden the non-elect. Uh, but even the disciples, 
still need some help with understanding. And so Jesus will have to explain a couple of these parables to them. So he then goes on to explain the parable of the sower, beginning in verse 18. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. So uh, he's going back to the, the story he told, the allegory. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. So he's saying the seed that is being sown is the word of the kingdom, uh, and that is the Greek word Logos, which is the word John uses in his gospel actually to refer to Christ as the word of God incarnate. Uh, so this is the message or the gospel of, the, of heaven, the gospel of the kingdom that is being preached. And it's sown, and some people uh, have hearts that will not have any understanding. They hear the word of the gospel, the, the word of Christ, and it's like seed that just lands on a well-trodden path where the dirt has been packed hard, the seed cannot take any root, it's sitting right on the surface, the birds come and just eat the seed. It's like Satan coming and snatching it away so, so that they have no understanding. Then he goes on in verse 20, but he who receives the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So this is the, the word of God preached to those whose hearts are uh, like thin, shallow soil, right? There's, there's stone underneath there. The soil is not very deep. Uh, and so they hear it and they appear to receive the word with gladness, but it can't take any deep roots. And so what happens is uh, it maybe is in their mind. They seem uh, to be on fire, but it actually has not taken root in their heart. And so when tribulation or persecution comes, they turn away. They don't want anything to do with it again. They don't want to endure persecution for the sake of Christ. And so uh, their faith actually is not real faith. Then in verse 22, now he who receives the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word cares for, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. So this is the seed that's cast on ground where it can potentially grow, but the thorns uh, are representing the cares of this world, riches, uh, entertainment, the things of this world that are more important uh, than the word of Christ, and so it chokes out uh, what interest there may have been in hearing the gospel. But then in verse 23, but he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So the good ground is a heart that is receptive, that hears the word, is enlightened by the spirit to understand it, and believes it by faith and obeys it so that it actually bears fruit, uh, to use language from another place in the New Testament, uh, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, and so the gospel actually bears fruit. Now, it's interesting to note some, a hundredfold, some 60, some 30, uh, the amount of fruit that is born in a person's life 
is really not the point. The point is, if they hear the word, understand it, and bear fruit, no matter how little or how great that fruit is, that's good soil. So, again, one sinner who is saved, rejoicing in the kingdom of heaven. Um, this is not, this, this parable is not a mathematical formula, right? We're not to look at this and go, okay, well, there's four types of soil. One of them is good soil. The other three are bad. That means when I go out and I share the gospel, one out of four people will, right? We're not, it's not a math formula. That's not how this works. Uh, it's simply meant to, to point out to us that, the, yes, the majority who hear the word uh, may reject it for one reason or another. They may seem to receive it, but then they don't follow through. Um, a minority will actually be changed by the word of God and their heart, it will take root in their hearts. Uh, Christosom said this, he said, Mark this, I pray thee, that the way of destruction is not only one, but there are differing ones and wide apart from one another. Let us not soothe ourselves upon our not perishing in any of these ways, but let it be our, our grief in whichever way we are perishing. So his point is, there are three ways here in this parable in which the word of God is not received, uh, in which faith is, does not take root in the heart. Uh, and so his point is, the hearer who hears this parable is to examine his own heart and go, do I have a heart that has received the word and actually grasped onto it and kept born fruit in keeping with the word and not, uh, not just been a fair-weather Christian or not got concerned with riches or the things of this world and ignored it. Uh, so the point of the parable is to make us think about our own hearts and, and examine ourselves. Then in verse 24 through 30, Jesus tells another parable. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. Lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. So uh, we have another parable uh, kind of along the same lines here of, of sowing, wheat, that sort of thing. Notice this one is introduced with this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. So this is a simile. Uh, the rest of them down to the end will use this phrase as an introduction. Uh, the tares are, notice, are sown by someone else, right? We have someone who sows wheat, but the enemy sows weeds. He sows tares among the wheat. Both of those things grow together, and then the servants come and ask, so, well, should we go and uproot the weeds? Should we go weed the garden? And the answer is no, because if you do that, you're going to risk uprooting some of the wheat as well, so we're going to let it grow until harvest time, and then we'll separate the two things out. We're going to forego an explanation of this one because Jesus is actually going to give us an explanation later in the chapter, but you can see uh, the similarity between these two parables, uh, sowing seed and this sort of thing. So Jesus is, again, calling on real-life experiences they're familiar with in order to make some spiritual points. Then in verse 31, he tells another parable. Another parable he put 
forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So, we, again, we have a seed. I mean, he's using similar uh, parables here. The kingdom is like uh, this seed, a mustard seed. He, he selects a mustard seed, which is a tiny little seed. Right? It's the smallest uh, little seed that they have. Uh, and so, what is the point of this? Well, the point is, let me read to you a passage from Ezekiel chapter 17. In Ezekiel 17, it says, Thus says the Lord God, I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. I will crop off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it and it will bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches they will dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree, dried up the green tree, and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. So here in the Old Testament we have this prophecy of a little twig being planted and growing into a majestic cedar. And and they understand that, again, to be a parable of the the coming kingdom. And so Jesus kind of uses a similar uh, parable here. We have a tiny seed that is planted. It grows up to be the largest plant in the garden, so large that it's not really an herb. It's a a, a small tree, and birds are able to build their nests in it. And, And so what is his point? Well, his point is the kingdom of God is like this, a small beginning, a big ending, uh, it, the majestic kingdom that they're expecting, the apocalyptic kingdom that will destroy the other kingdoms of the earth and where the God's appointed king will sit on the throne and rule over the whole earth. It's coming, but it doesn't come in like that. It begins differently. It begins in a small way and grows into that over time. So it starts in this unexpectedly small way. Then in verse 33, another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. So this is a a short parable, uh, but again, a similar theme, right? The kingdom of heaven is like, and then he compares it to leaven. Now, this would be kind of surprising. Leaven is not always used in a negative way in Scripture, but it most often is. Most often, leaven is the teaching of the Pharisees. It's sin in the church. It's, leaven is usually something bad. Occasionally, it represents something good. In this case, it does, but that would kind of get the listener's attention. Why He's comparing the kingdom of heaven to leaven. That's unusual. So what is he trying to say here? Well, he's really saying the same thing he said in the previous uh, parable. A small beginning, right? The leaven is mixed into a ball of dough. Uh, you can't even see the leaven when it's mixed in with the flour and the other ingredients. Uh, it's a tiny amount compared to the three measures uh, of meal that are used. But what does it do to the meal? It causes it to rise. It causes it to grow. It transforms it from the inside. Uh, and so, again, we have this idea of the loaf of bread is coming but it has to start out with this small amount of leaven that transforms this meal into a loaf of bread over time, much like the mustard seed starts out small and becomes uh, the majestic kingdom that they were expecting. 
So you can see uh, these parables are all taken from everyday life, things they're familiar with, and are making spiritual points about the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom they were expecting is going to come in a way that's different than what they had expected. It's not going to come in with a bang and just the kingdom be established and destroy Rome and establish the throne of Israel over the whole nation. Rather, it's going to start small. It's going to start uh, maybe internally like the leaven does in the ball of dough uh, and transform individual lives and slowly grow into uh, this kingdom that will come in the end. In the middle of the chapter now, we have uh, this interlude here where Matthew tells us in verses 34 and 35, All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So as Jesus is speaking to the multitudes, he's using his parables. He's already told us why he's using the parables, to enlighten those who have ears to hear uh, and to veil these truths, to continue to harden those who do not. Uh, But here, it's also said that he's doing this in order to fulfill something that was spoken by a prophet. Anybody know what prophet it was that said that? It's a surprising one. Asaph. Asaph in Psalm 78. Psalm 78 begins in this way. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. So he's going to speak in a parable. He's going to utter dark sayings or secret sayings, mysteries of the kingdom, as Matthew called them. Uh, But he says, they are things which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. And then what does he do? Psalm 78 is a long one. It's 72 verses. And he goes on to kind of give us a history lesson of the nation of Israel. Uh, He describes and recounts uh, the events of the nation's history. But in doing so, he's revealing uh, the righteous acts of God in redemption. He's recounting that history, but he's pointing out some patterns in it that call attention uh, to God's redemption of his people. So he's not saying anything new, but he's pointing out something, some patterns that might not have been seen uh, previously. So Jesus is doing the same thing. Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy. Uh, He's opening his mouth in parables. He's uttering things that have been kept secret uh, from the foundation of the earth. But He's not telling them anything that wasn't there in the Old Testament, but he's drawing their attention to it, revealing the truth to them uh, that was kind of hidden in the Old Testament. Yes, this kingdom is coming, this apocalyptic kingdom which will uh, rule over the whole earth, but it's not coming in the way that they had expected. Uh, It's not uh, initially coming in that way. From a small beginning, uh, it will transform lives of the citizens of that kingdom, uh, and then it will be consummated into that world-transforming apocalyptic kingdom that they were expecting. Then in verse 36, it says, Then Jesus sent the multitude away, and he went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. So 
Jesus has sent the multitudes away. Uh, from this point on, he's dealing strictly with the disciples. Uh, and now they're asking him for an explanation of this other parable of the wheat and the tares. So he answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sows them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, in Jesus' explanation of this parable, uh, we, we hear that the, the sower in this case is Christ himself. Uh, the good seed that he is sowing uh, is the sons of the kingdom. That is, those who are being redeemed by the Spirit, the elect who are being regenerate uh, in all the world. The field represents the world, uh, and the tares are those that the enemy has sown. Uh, unbelievers, those who are not uh, elect, whose hearts are still hard towards the gospel, uh, and the two can't be separated. And so that's why in the last couple of weeks as we've discussed the kingdom and the overlap of the kingdom of heaven with what we call the common kingdom of the world, those two things overlap, right? Believers live in the midst of the world. Uh, We're governed by the Noahic covenant along with unbelievers, uh, but we're also citizens of heaven at the same time. And those two things will continue intertwined until uh, the end of the age when Christ will return uh, and gather uh, all of the uh, unbelievers for judgment who will be cast into the lake of fire. And then all of the believers then will be uh, residents of the kingdom eternally. So, That's Jesus' explanation of that. And so we notice that as Jesus teaches parables uh, here in chapter 13 and through the rest of the Gospels, oftentimes uh, they have uh, an eschatological end to them, right? He's teaching about the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom. It's here now in this small way, but he's also speaking about uh, the final establishment of the kingdom at his return. So he's addressing those things, but the point of these first four parables was that, yes, that kingdom is coming, but the kingdom is here now, but it's not here how they expected it to be here. Uh, It comes in a different way, uh, in a small way, in the lives and hearts of believers as we're transformed uh, into uh, citizens fit to live in that kingdom. And so we'll stop there for tonight, and next week we'll look at the next four parables that Jesus tells to the disciples apart from the multitude uh, and continue on from there. But let's close in a word of prayer.